If you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 22, and I'll add my welcome to Drew's. I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're online with us, uh, we're glad you're here. I don't think you're here by accident in any way. And um, you're here, if, if this is your first Sunday uh, here or tuning in with us, we're in a study that's called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're looking at who God is through the lens of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what we know as the patriarchs of Genesis. And the reason we're doing that is because when God introduces himself to Moses and to the Israelites, he says about himself, this is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've been looking um, at this. We started and with Abraham, and we're coming really to the end of Abraham's story this morning. And we're going to see Really, I think it's one of the highest watermarks in all of the Bible. I mean, Genesis chapter 22 is a chapter that has a depth and a height that really we, we can't attain to. It's kind of like trying to describe space, you know? I mean, I, I can look up in the stars. I can, you know, look up into the sky at night. I can tell you what it is that I see. I can... I can build a ship and go, you know, where no man has got I me, mean, no person's gone before. I can have, you know, Star Trek and then Star Trek The Next Generation and then the Deep Space Nine. I can do all this. I can tell you all the things that I know and all of the things that we guess about and, um, uh, and hypothesize about, but there's no way for us to be able to get to the end of the knowledge about space. The more we know, the more we realize we don't know. Well, in some ways, Genesis 22 is one of those space passages, if you will. It's one of those that we can spend a lifetime looking at and never master fully. Our hope is that this is a kind of chapter, this is a kind of a scene, this is kind of a, a story that shows up in the narrative of God redeeming humanity and that we'd be mastered by it, that it would change us. Paul writes about this passage. The writer of Hebrews writes about this passage. James writes about this passage. And in many ways, Jesus' whole life is the demonstration of this passage. So here's what I want to do. I want to read Genesis chapter 22, and then I want to walk back through, and I want to, I want to talk about it. I want to sort of make some observations along the way as we walk through it and hopefully make, um, uh, show you a, a couple of things and then make some applications for us and trust that the Lord will do something far beyond what any one of us is able to do. So this is what it says. Moses recording this story of Abraham's life. And it says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, or here am I. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and 
the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. We'll stop the reading there. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to see into this passage, to, to hear it, to be drawn to a greater understanding of you this morning. Father, I understand the depths of the faith that you are working in us. Father, we ask you to draw this to the surface of our life this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think a true, honest discussion about faith always finds its way to this story. And a couple of things I want you to know. Look at verse 1. Again, he says, and, and after these things, and the after these things, uh, this is all of the stories of Abraham up to this point, the passages that we've looked at over the last several weeks, and in the passages that we haven't. Abraham's journey began in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls him out of the Ur of Chaldeans says to Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to leave everything you know. And I want you to go. I want you to follow me to a place that I'm not going to tell you yet, but you keep following me. You'll find out what it is. I want you, 75-year-old Abraham, to bring your wife. There's going to be offspring that come from you, and not just are you going to have a child, but they're going to have children and children and children, and it'll be it would be more than you can possibly imagine, Abraham. I want you to follow me. So Abraham does. There from the very beginning, we see that Abraham is going to be a man of faith. He's going to be a man that when he hears God, he's going to follow. And we'll also find out he doesn't do that perfectly. His faith is up and his faith is down. And he finds himself discouraged and sometimes doubting what it is that God said. And he'll have to come back to God and say, well, it's been so long and this hasn't happened yet. And Abraham will end up waiting 25 years for this child that was promised to be born in the way that God intended. After these things, and it says that God tested 
Abraham. Now, this is important for us because we've got to remember right up at the front, this is a test. Any discussion about God meaning or calling Abraham to child sacrifice is done away with in this one word. This is a test. This is not God's intention for Abraham to sacrifice his son. He's testing Abraham. James, he tells us how tests work. In James chapter 1, 1 through 4, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And he begins right away by saying to these 12 tribes that are dispersed, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, or tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or the testing of your faith works out patience. And, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He goes on a few verses later, blessed is the man or the man or the, and the woman who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James says that there are times in our life that our faith is tested. And testing is not designed to be something that breaks us. It's designed to produce, to, to work. You might say it's designed to purify or to draw out. In fact, I think James makes it clear later on in chapter 1. What he means is that we would be that, that, that the testing would draw to the surface of our life that divine activity that has been working in us since we were first called to believe. So the minute, the moment you were called to believe, the moment you trusted that God had sent His Son, Jesus, for your salvation, that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die into your place, to, to take all of your sin on Himself. The minute you trusted that, there was divine work that began in you. The Holy Spirit came to indwell you. And God begins working from the inside out, and what testing does is it draws to the surface of our life, to our everyday life, which means our mind and our thoughts and our actions and our relationships, that what's working, divine working on the inside is drawn to the surface of our life. Paul, he says it this way, that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's working in you for His will, for His work, for His good pleasure. And this testing of our faith, it, it draws to the surface of our life. What God's been working inside of us, testing of faith, it produces, it works out what God's been working in you. This means something about Abraham's faith in this passage is going to be worked out. It's going to be drawn to the surface. It's, it's, it's going to be clarified That God's been doing more in Abraham than he knew at the time. That God's been working all of these things in his life. And here in this test, God's going to draw those things to the surface. 
See, I would tell you that's the same for every one of us. God draws us further than our knowledge of Him, further than our understanding of Him. He's always drawing us. Now, here's what you need to know. Abraham does not know this is a test. The reader does. We, we know it's a test, but Abraham doesn't know that it's a test. And what's the test? Well, I think it's a test of surrender. It's a test like any other test. Let me make sure I say it that way. When we get to verse 2, we're going to see God test Abraham and call Abraham and really command Abraham to something that is unparalleled. It is unique. It is not a pattern. While there are principles for us to follow, this is a one-off kind of test for a one-off man who is the beginning of the generations of those who will be called of faith. This is a test for Abraham. Some have called it a test of obedience. I think that's okay, although I don't know that that fully captures it. Abraham's obedience had already been tested been tested in several ways. And sometimes he wins, sometimes he loses. Sometimes he follows God without question. Other times he seems to squirrel around and make a little bit of a mess. I think it's more than even a test of obedience. It's a test of surrender. In fact, Abraham's life of faith has been a, a life of surrendering. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, which Genesis 12, uh, 2 and, 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 and Genesis 22, 2, they're meant to parallel each other. These are, this is meant to be bookmarks in, in, in Abraham's life. Surrender. I, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything that you have known. I want you to surrender that and follow me. And he does, and yet there's lots still hanging around, and that's okay. God doesn't fuss with him about that. Just waits another chapter and, and gets to a place where now he's got to send Lot off. Because Lot wasn't who God was going to work through. He ends up having to surrender his plans in 17. We saw that when he pleads with God. He makes this appeal. Listen, what about Ishmael? Can't we just do this through Ishmael? God said, no, that's not my plan. I need you to surrender your plan. Well, a few chapters later, in fact, the chapter just before this in chapter 21, he ends up having to surrender Ishmael, sending Ishmael off, sending him away. And Abraham loved Ishmael, and he had to surrender him. Here in chapter 22, it's the surrender of Isaac. It's the surrender, in some ways, of all that God has promised him. Let me just stop here and say surrendering for us as believers while there is no parallel in our life that matches, this surrendering is very real. So surrendering is a lifelong process. It would be nice. It would be so nice. In fact, comforting, exciting, doable, if surrender was kind of a one-and-done kind of thing. We would, we would each meet. In fact, we could have pins. Probably we'd come up with something in the church that would, that would say, yeah, I've already went through my moment of surrender. I am a surrendered or I am awaiting surrendering. But it's not like that. It happens over and over and over again in our life. Think about it this way. This is the, the bookends. One commentator observes, he says, in chapter 12, Abraham is being called to forsake or to surrender his past. 
When he comes and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to follow me. And I'll tell you where we're going somewhere along the way. Surrender your past. Genesis 22 is an equal but probably greater surrender, and that is he's being asked to surrender his future. For 25 years, childless Abraham followed God halfway around the world on nothing more than a promise, on God's Word. He, he was called to a faith and a hope in what he couldn't see. He was called to, to a faith in, in really what seemed impossible. Here he's commanded, he's called to offer up what he can see, what, what he loves, the, the dream come true, the, the hope that he holds in his hand. And then, and then you see it, he says, your, your son, your only son Isaac, you know, the son whom you love. I mean, it, it heightens the drama for us. God is in no way short-selling Abraham on what he's asking him to give up. God's being dead-level honest with Abraham. I know you love your son, your only son, your son Isaac, the son of the promise, the son you waited 25 years to hold. Ten times in this story we're reminded of Abraham's son. That's by design. Well, I think the key, and I don't want you to miss this, it says, he said in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, we don't know what Moriah means yet in this passage. We, most of us here, don't speak fluent Hebrew. But it's very possible, likely even, Abraham would have known the land of Moriah. The land of Moriah. Oh, Moriah means provide. The, the word literally means see, you know, to see, or maybe a good translation, to see to it. It's the land of provision. I want you to follow. I want you to take and go and offer up in the land of Moriah, in the land of provision, in the land of my provision. Abraham, I'm asking you, I'm commanding you to do what seems unthinkable. I'm asking you to trust me with what you can't understand. Listen, we got to realize this. This would be devastating for Abraham. Although the, the author in all of this literary wonder, which most scholars and people who study literature, ancient literature, all agree this story in Genesis 22 is a masterpiece of literature, one of the best told stories ever in ancient literature. And the author gives us no insight into the emotions of Abraham. I think he does that because we're, we supply some of the emotion. We, we know what that would feel like. We know what we would be feeling if we were called to this. I'm asking you to trust me with what you can't understand. I'm asking you to trust me with what seems to be the biggest contradiction, the tension between what I have promised and what I have commanded. What I have promised you and what now I am calling you to. And by the way, Abraham's test, I want to say it again, it's a whole other realm. It's unique. It's, 
specific in, in countless ways, but God's saying to him, I am asking you to trust that I will provide, that I will see to it, that I see. I'm asking you to trust Abraham that I see. Some have called this a blind faith of Abraham. He's, he's not being called to, to trust in a God, to, to have faith in a God that is blind. Abraham can't see it. But Abraham's trusting that God sees. I don't understand this, but I know God understands it. This is the call. Well, look at the journey. It begins in verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning. He, he uh, uh, there's, there's no delay. And over the next verses, you've got to see, he took, he takes, he, he goes, he went, he offers. All of these get repeated. What God's commanded, we are seeing Abraham's obedience. He takes, he went, he offers. Everything he prepares. Isaac's at the age, you know, maybe 20 years old. I don't know, he's old enough that he's going to go on this journey. He's old enough that in a minute all the wood's going to be put on him and he's going to hike it up the hill. He's old enough, he's strong enough. I want you to notice one other thing, and we'll move on. It says there, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, the servants. One commentator, Bruce Walkie, he says, the servants are brought along to be left behind. This is their function. A very strange one in any narrative. Characters who are introduced solely in order to take no part in it. And what it does is it heightens our sense of Abraham's isolation. Abraham must leave everything behind. His lonely journey up that mountain symbolizes the lonely psychological journey of faith to a place of surrender. Verse 4 tells us that it's a three-day journey. It was a long time. Lots of one foot in front of the other. Keep moving forward. He had plenty of time to think about it. In verse 5, notice, Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. We... We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. And the Hebrew makes very clear Abraham saying, we will go, we will worship, and we will come back. It's faith. It's faith working itself out here. Now, Abraham doesn't have any idea how that will happen. He has no idea how this will work out. In fact, you know this because in verse 7, well, verse 6, Isaac, he carries the wood. But notice Abraham, he's carrying the weight, isn't he? Isaac, you carry the wood. I'll carry the fire and the knife. I can guarantee you, being in Abraham's shoes, that knife would have felt ten times heavier than any wood Isaac was carrying up that hill. The knife is the, is the weight. And then you get to verse 7, and you have this very awkward conversation. Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And you have this sense Isaac's been saying, you know, I've been waiting three days to ask you this. I didn't know what, but Here's the deal. We got the wood, we got the fire, we got the knife. There's one thing missing. Now I realize I'm only 20 years old or however old. 
But I know enough to know that when we get up there, we're going to need a lamb for the sacrifice. We're going to need a lamb for the burnt offering. Any idea what, did we forget the lamb? Notice in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. God will provide. If you've heard kind of in popular de devotional writings, you, the, the term Jehovah Jireh, this is where this comes from. Literally, the text, God will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Abraham here is surrendered to the provision of God, to the God who sees. Even when you can't see, you believe that He sees. That's what it means. One writer said, I've spent my whole life learning about God, learning to trust Him. This is what Abraham's saying to Isaac. Isaac, I've learned my whole life learning about God. Learned my whole life, been learning my whole life to trust Him. He will see to it, Isaac. That's what he's saying. Derek Kidner, one of the other commentators. Listen, I've read every commentary there is in the world on this. Nobody's gotten to the end of the story. Kidner says Abraham's response combines this complete certainty about God with a complete openness to the details. He's, in other, he's sure of God. He's just not sure of God's method. So I would say, after you surrender to God, the details don't matter. And the degree to which the details still matter to you, the how, the why, the who, the, is the degree to which you're still hanging on to something. I remember growing up, I probably told you some, you know, I, mean, I grew up in the in the 1980s, in the middle of the, uh, in West Texas, in the oil bust, you know, I mean, that's when I was a teenager coming of age, and, uh, you know, life economically was hard for everybody. I mean, there was, you know, houses foreclosed and the big house, everything, um, but it, particularly we felt it. I mean, I, I was a, the oldest of five children with a single mom. And there were times, I confess to you, there were times, there were a lot of times, you know, we, it'd be Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and, we, you know, we knew, we knew, man, the electricity was going to be shut off on Friday if something didn't happen and somebody didn't pay that bill. And yet, there was no prospect of any way that that bill was going to be paid. And I remember, man, I, you know, I'm 14, 15, 16 years old, I'd be all stressed about that, and, you know, and I just remember my mom saying over and over again, I mean, she got this, she understood. Now, she was put in that most desperate place in the whole world where she didn't have anything but faith, but she would say all the time, she would say, you know, it's not Friday yet. I said, well, how are we going to, what's going to happen, how is this going to, you know, it's not just going to fall from the sky. I was so practical, you'd have been so proud of me, I was so practical. And she would look in all the confidence in the world. And essentially, she was saying, I, you know what? I can't see it, but I know God sees it. It's not Friday yet. Here's what she also knew. If they shut off the electricity, we'd still live. None of us were on life support at the time. It was okay. We'd candles, we'd, you know. It's not that big a deal. I was always struck by that, how unsurrendered I was. Of course I was. Now she came to be able to say, I'm not worried about the details. Well, 9 and through 10, and, and we've got to move on here, but 9 and 10, got, verses 9 and 10, everything kind of like goes into slow motion. We've had three days pass, a journey up the hill, and now all of a sudden, verses 9 and 10 becomes this, 
you know, slow motion agony. Everything slows down. The suspense builds. At the same time, slow as it is, there's no hesitation. Abraham is not wavering. Look at this. When they came to the place which God had told him, then Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son. And a lot of people, you know, at this point, that phrase right there sends him off into a million distractions about Isaac. You know, he's probably old enough to wrestle the old man and say, I'm not me, you, I'll just tie you up. But he doesn't. And there's a story there, but you know what? That's not the story the author's telling. Makes the altar stacks the wood, binds his son, lays him on the altar, on top of the wood. You see all these details. It's like the, the narrator himself just waiting. Something's got to happen. Something's gotta, if I give more detail, something's got to happen. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And Abraham was committed. In the statements of relief, it's hard to overestimate the relief that verse 11 brings with one contrastive conjunction. But. The angel of the Lord called from heaven. You feel the urgency. Abraham, Abraham. Now here. He says, here am I. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Test is over. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And that's interesting. See, the Bible tells us of a God who is absolutely omniscient and knows the end from the beginning, he knows the thoughts of man. And as God says, I know you fear God, there's a sense in which he's saying to Abraham, and by my grace, now you know that you fear God. You know. What, is, what I've been working on inside of you, this divine activity of faith that I've been working in you has come to the surface. Now you know, Abraham, what it is that I've been doing. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place. What else could he call it? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, the Lord will see to it. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Well, it goes on to tell us um, the blessings that get reaffirmed to Abraham. The blessings that we saw in chapter 12 and then again the blessings of the nations, that he's going to be a blessing to the, to the world. And, and, and God begins to expand the details on this promise in a way that this man now who understands the faith that's been working on inside of him, he can believe. I think there are some things that get drawn to the surface in Abraham's life, and I want to I want to close with those things. I, I think they are things that we can apply to our own life, principles that we can say, you know what, this, 
This is true for me too, that God's never going to come in a command to you or a call to you to sacrifice your child. If he does, please call the police first because it's not God. It's a one-off thing. It's a unique moment in time. But God does test us. God does test our faith. He does test us for the purpose of drawing to the surface all that He's working in us. I would say one of the first things is that the extent to which God provides defies all understanding and all human knowledge. Our understanding, listen, our understanding, our knowledge, it takes us to the very edge of possibility. In fact, maybe, maybe even our understanding and our knowledge and all our human ingenuity, it might even take us beyond the edge just a little bit. But we see what's possible and we have faith enough to believe just beyond what's possible. But really that gets revealed. It's faith in solutions yet thought of. Technology yet invented. Understanding and knowledge yet to be gained. But that's not what we're talking about. We find, listen, God's provision is beyond the reach of anything possible or anything potentially possible. God's provision reaches Beyond all of that, it reaches into what is impossible. God's provision is not limited by possible. Hebrews 11. Tells us something else that was drawn to the surface of Abraham's life. First. What God provides, what He sees, what He accomplishes, that's beyond. It's beyond possible. It's in the realm of impossible. What also gets drawn to the surface of Abraham's life, Hebrews 11 tells us, is something else God's been working in him, and that is that our relationship by faith, that relationship defies our destiny. See, here's how it works. From the moment you take your first breath, we're destined to die. From your first breath, you are destined to die. And it doesn't matter what you do, you can't beat death. It doesn't matter. You you cannot become so significant that death ignores you, or so wealthy that death ignores you, or so accomplished that death ignores you, or so important, or so knowledgeable or so healthy that death ignores you. No, your destiny is death. But here's the thing we discover. What Abraham comes to believe, we find in Hebrews 11, is that death is not a problem for God. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 17, by faith, when Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So we know the writer of Hebrews is thinking about this passage. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was in the act of putting to death, cutting himself off from all the promises God had promised him. Of whom it is said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Everything God promised you, Abraham, everything God's given to you, He was in the process of cutting off from that. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
was drawn to the surface in Abraham's life was that his relationship with God, his relationship, it defies destiny. Death is not a problem for God. Paul observes that God was already working this out in Abraham's life all along. Abraham, he lived a life hoping in what he could not see, what he could not fathom. He believed God for what he could not understand. I am an old man. I'm way past the childbearing years, not to mention my wife. But yet he continued to believe God. He had nothing. He was hoping, trusting God for something. I have nothing. God's promised something. I am trusting God for that specific something. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans 4. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as had been told to him. So shall your offspring be. And then he said he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since it was 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness or the deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He believed that God was able to bring life from death. Now listen, here's the rub. After the promise was in his arms, after the promise was living and breathing, after what he could see was visible and tangible now, now, see, he had everything. Loss. This is what he was facing. It was to lose everything, to to give it up, to offer it up. It's one thing to trust God for something when you have nothing. God, I trust you for what I do not have. It is another thing to surrender everything, to lose everything. God, I trust you with everything I have. And what gets drawn to the surface is Abraham realizing that God is greater than everything he has. Every gift that he has been given, nothing compares to God, the God who sees the God who provides. And finally, this last thing, the faith we have in God is not secured by what it costs us, but by what it costs God. See, here what's fascinating, this mount at Moriah, you find out a thousand years later in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Guess where? On Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father in the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor or in the Jebusite. The temple mount, this is what this becomes. Moriah becomes the temple mount, which a thousand years later is Calvary. What is anticipated in Genesis 22, it's illustrated through a thousand years of temple worship and sacrifice and substitution. Where you bring the lamb, the animal, who sacrificed on your behalf for your sins, and then a thousand years after that, it'll be demonstrated that what was sacrificed in eternity will be demonstrated in history on Calvary, on the cross. And Isaiah writes of Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him, he has put uh, him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Paul says, thinking about Genesis 22, what shall we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. God spared Abraham. God did not spare 
himself. See, what's actually going on is that God loves you so much. He loved Abraham so much. He loves you so much that he gave his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves to have a relationship with you. You find that this God who sees to it, this God who sees, this God who provides, he provides everything he demands. And he does with Abraham, and he does with you. But you trust him. Because the faith you have as a believer is that being tested out, worked out, drawn to the surface of your life. Are you trusting that even what you cannot see now, He sees? That even what seems impossible, He provides? If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work this out in us. You would draw to the surface the faith that you have been working in our lives. And Father, for those this morning, if there's somebody this morning here or watching online and they don't have faith, they, they've never come to the place of saying, okay, I hear the call to trust you, and I, I've never done that, but now I trust you. That Father, that first initial surrender of their life to you, to trust you, to believe you, I pray you would work that in their hearts and their minds. And they would begin that journey today. And for all of us as we're on this journey, as you are working out into the fabric and footsteps of our life, what it is that you are working inside of us. Father, continue to help us one foot in front of the other to trust you, that you see, that you provide. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who is ultimately the sacrifice you offered, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you would, would you stand with me? We'll be dismissed. Come back next week. Getting into Isaac next week. It's pretty fun. Uh, you know, it is pretty great. So may the, may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.